He also engaged several persons to send them children once a week to be catechized by him. And he had about 60 or 70 children that came to him every Lord's Day who profited much by his instructions until some took such offense at it that he was forced to desist and the schoolmaster was threatened to be brought into the bishop's court at Wells for it. He also sent for all the godly poor he could hear of in the city whom he entertained in his chamber and gave them money according to his ability as a thank offering to God for his mercy to him and procured two of the aforenamed ministers to assist him in keeping the day of thanksgiving for the same. Though his sickness had been long and his expenses great, yet he thought he could never do enough for him from whom he had received all. He always gave money or apples to all the children that came to be catechized by him besides what he gave to their teachers and the poor. And having made provisions for his wife, he resolved to lay up the rest in heaven, often saying that having no children of his own, God's children should have his estate. His next work was to send letters to all his relations and intimate friends whom he exhorted to observe his counsel, for it was like to be his last. He had a great desire to go to Joseph Bernard's, which is about five miles from Bath, to promote the exercise of catechizing in Somerset and Wiltshire. Mr. Bernard, having had a great deliverance as well as himself, he proposed to him that by way of thank offering unto God, they should engage to join in the printing 6,000 of the assembly's catechisms and to raise some money among other friends to send to every minister in those countries that would engage the work and also to give to the children for their encouragement in learning it, which was effected by Mr. Bernard after Mr. Elaine's decease. When he looked upon his weak and consumed hands, he said, These shall be changed. This vile body shall be made like unto Christ's glorious body. And again, Oh, what a glorious day will the day of the resurrection be. Methinks I see it by faith. How will the saints then lift up their heads and rejoice? And how sadly will the wicked world look then? Oh, come, let us make haste. Our Lord will come shortly. Let us prepare for Him. If we long to be in heaven, let us hasten with our work. For when that is done, away we shall be fetched. He was often in commending the love of Christ, and from that exciting himself and others to obedience to Christ, often speaking of his sufferings and of his glory, as also of his love letters. And so he styled the history of his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and of his second coming, his thoughts of which he was often much ravished with. In brief, his whole life was a continued sermon, holding forth the doctrines which he preached, of humility, self-denial, patience, meekness, content, faith, love to God, his church, and people, the blessed fruit of all which he now reaps in heaven, where he is singing praises unto God and the Lamb, which was great delight whilst he lived in this world. The next Puritan I'm going to read about is the Puritan Thomas Shepard, born in 1605 and died in 1649. Thomas Shepard was born at Northampton, educated at Cambridge, and in 1634 left England for America, where he spent the rest of his life. He was assigned to the work of the ministry at a solemn meeting and conference of sundry godly ministers about it. There were to be the number of twelve at the meeting, whose solemn advice was that he should serve the Lord in the gospel of his Son, wherein they have been the salvation of many a soul. For upon this he addressed himself to the work, with that reality and seriousness in wooing and winning souls, that his word made deep impressions and seldom or never fell to the ground. He was a lecturer a while at Earlscone in Essex, which we take it was the first place of this ministry, where he did much good and the people there, though now it is a long since and many are gone, yet having a very precious and deep remembrance of him, of the mighty power of God by him to this day. 
But Dr. W. Laud, then Bishop of London, soon stopped his mouth and drove him away as he did many other godly ministers from Essex at the same time. After this he lived in Burgercrome in Yorkshire at Sir Richard Darley's house till the iniquity of those times hunted him thence also. Then he went to Northumberland till silence there also. And, being thus molested and chased up and down at home, he fled to New England, and after some difficulties and delays by great storms and disasters at sea, upon the sands and coasts of Yarmouth, which retarded his voyage till another year, he arrived there at last, where he was pastor to a precious flock at Cambridge about fourteen years. His manner of preaching was close and searching, and with abundance of affection and compassion to his hearers. He took great pains in his preparations for his public labors, accounting it a cursed thing to do the work of the Lord negligently, and therefore spending usually two or three whole days in preparing for the work of the Sabbath, had his sermons finished usually on Saturday by two of the clock. He hath sometimes expressed himself thus in public, God will curse that man's labors that lumbers up and down in the world all the week, and then upon Saturday in the afternoon goes to his study, when, as God knows, that time were little enough to pray and weep in, and to get his heart in frame, and so on. He affected plainness together with power in preaching, not seeking obstrusities, nor liking to hover and soar aloft in dark expressions, and, to, and so shoot his arrows, as many preachers do, over the heads of his hearers. It is a wretched stumbling block to some that his sermons are somewhat strict, and as they term it legal, some souls can relish none but meal-mouthed preachers who come with soft and smooth and toothless words. But these times need humbling ministries, and blessed be God that there are any, for where there are no law sermons there will be few gospel lies, and were there more law preaching by the men of gifts, there would be more gospel walking both by themselves and the people. To preach the law, not in forced, affected manner, but wisely and powerfully, together with the gospel, as Christ himself was wont to do, Matthew 5 and elsewhere, is a way to carry on all three together, sense of misery, the application of the remedy, and the returns of thankfulness and duty. Nor is any doctrine more comforting than this humbling way of God, if rightly managed. His sickness began with a sore throat, and then in a quinsy, and then in a fever, whereof he died August 25, 1649. This was one thing he said upon his deathbed, Lord, I am vile, but thou art righteous. And to those that were about him, he bid them love Jesus Christ dearly. That little part that I have in him is no small comfort to me now. Thus far those reverend and eminent men, Mr. William Greenhill and Mr. Samuel Mather in 1657, by mistake, indeed, they supposed Mr. Shepherd was 46 or 47 years old when he died, for precisely speaking, he was but 43 years, 8 months, and 20 days. So great a progress did he make in sanctity and divine knowledge, and in the midst of many molestations and abundant ministerial labors, he composed and did so much and grew in such esteem and pious fame in so short a time that I cannot but reckon him one of the admirable men of his age. On this occasion I would recite a paragraph in the life of the Reverend Mr. James Fraser of Bray in Scotland, published in Edinburgh in 1738, as follows, quote, The Lord has blessed the reading of practical writings to me, and thereby my heart has been put into frame and much strength and light gotten, such as Isaac Ambrose, Goodwin, Mr. Gray, and very much by Mr. Rutherford's, above others, but most of all by Thomas Shepard of New England, his works. He hath by the Lord been made the interpreter, one of a thousand, so that under Christ I have been obliged to his writings, 
as much and more than to any mean whatever for my awakening, strengthening, and enlightening my soul. The Lord made him a well of water to me in all my wilderness straits. End quote. The next Puritan I am reading about is John Cotton. The manner of his conversion was thus. During his residence in the University of Cambridge, God began to work upon him by the ministry of Mr. William Perkins, of blessed memory, but the motions and stirrings which then were in his heart he suppressed, thinking that if he should trouble himself with manners of religion according to the light he had then received, it would be an hindrance to him in his studies, which he had then had much addicted himself to. Therefore he was willing to silence those suggestions and inward callings which he had from God's Spirit, and did willingly defer the prosecution of that work till afterwards. At length, as he was walking in the fields, he heard the bell tolling for Mr. Perkins, who lay a-dying, whereupon he was secretly glad in heart that he should now be rid of him, who had, as he said, laid siege to and beleaguered his heart. This became manner of much affliction to him afterwards, God keeping it upon his spirit with the aggravation of it, and making it an effectual means of convincing and humbling him in the sight and sense of the natural enmity that is in man against God. Afterwards, hearing Dr. Sibbs preaching a sermon about regeneration, wherein he showed first what regeneration was not, and so opened the state of a mere civil man. Mr. Cotton saw his own condition fully discovered, which through God's mercy put him to a stand, as plainly seeing himself destitute of true grace. All his false hopes now fell in him, he lay for a long time in an uncomfortable, despairing way, and of all other things this was his heaviest burden, that he wittingly withstood the means of grace and offers of mercy which he found had been tendered to him. Thus he continued till it pleased God to let in a word of faith into his heart, and to cause him to look unto Christ for his healing, which word also was dispensed unto him by the same Dr. Sibbs, which begat in him a singular and constant love to him, of whom he was also answerably beloved. He had been some time before called to preach an university sermon at St. Mary's, which he did with high applause from the academical wits, insomuch as the fame of his learning grew greater and greater. And being now again called to preach in the same manner, the memory of his former accurate exercises filled the colleges, especially the young students, with the fresh, fresh expectation of such elegancies of learning as made them flock to the sermons with an Athenian itch after some new thing, but his spirit now savoring of the cross of Christ more than of human literature, his speech and preaching was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom. The disappointed expectation of the auditory soon appeared in their countenances, and the discouragement of their non-acceptance made him return to his chamber not without some sad thoughts of heart, where yet he had not been long before Dr. Preston knocks at his chamber door, and coming in acquainted him with his spiritual condition, and tells him how it had pleased God to work effectually upon his heart by that sermon, after which Dr. Preston ever highly prized him, which real seal of God unto his ministry much comforted his soul far above what the present less acceptance of the auditory had dejected him, or their former acceptance had encouraged him. About the twenty-eighth year of his age he was settled at Boston in Lincolnshire, and at that time he was much exercised with some inward troubles, which much dejected him. But this dispensation of the all-wise God he afterwards found not only to be beneficial unto him in preparing his heart for his work, but also that it became an effectual means of his more peaceable and comfortable settlement in that place, where the people were divided amongst themselves by reason of a potent man in the town who adhered to another Cambridge man, whom he would fain have brought in. 
But when he saw Mr. Cotton wholly taken up with his own exercises of spirit, he was free from all suspicion of his being pragmatical or addicted to siding with this or that party. And so both he and his party began to close more fully with him. And so for three or four years he preached amongst them without opposition. They counted themselves happy, as well they might, in the enjoyment of him, both the town and country thereabouts being much bettered and reformed by his labors. But after he was not able to hear the ceremonies imposed, his nonconformity occasioned his trouble in the bishop's court at Lincoln. However, he was advised to appeal to an higher court, which he did, and gave him to his cause, and so was restored unto Boston. After this time, he was blessed with a successful ministry unto the end of twenty years. He took much pains in private, and read to several young scholars that were in his house, and to some that came out of Germany, and had his house full of auditors. Afterwards, seeing some inconvenience in the people's flocking to his house, besides his ordinary lecture on the Thursdays, he preached thrice more in public on the weekdays, on Wednesdays and Thursdays early in the morning, and on Saturdays at three o'clock in the afternoon. He was frequent in duties of humiliation and thanksgiving. Sometimes he continued five or six hours in prayer and opening the word. So indefatigable was he in the Lord's work, so willing to spin and be spent therein. Besides, he answered many letters that were sent him far and near, wherein were hand-led many difficult cases of conscience, and many doubts cleared to great satisfaction. The times being now such that he could not continue in the public exercise of his ministry with a good conscience, and the envy of his maligners, having now procured letters missive to convent him before the High Commission Court, Mr. Cotton, having intelligence thereof, and well knowing that scorns and imprisonment were to be expected from them, according to the advice of many, amongst whom Mr. Dodd of blessed memory had a singular influence, he kept himself close for a time in and about London, and, went, and when he went into New England it was not a flight from duty, nor from the profession of the truth, but unto a more opportune place for professing it. When Mr. Cotton arrived at New England, his manner of entrance unto them was a great blessing, for at his first coming he found them not free from troubles about settling the manners, both of church and commonwealth, at which time being requested he preached before the general court. His text was Haggai 2, verse 4, Yet now be ye strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. And the Lord working mightily by this sermon, and all obstructions were presently removed, and the spirits of all sorts as one man were excited unanimously and vigorously in the work of the Lord from that very day. In order to which the court, considering that all the members of the republic were also church members, and therefore to be governed according to the law of God, they desired Mr. Cotton to draw an abstract of the judicial laws delivered from God to Moses, so far forth as they were of perpetual and universal obligation, which accordingly he did. From this time it was an usual thing for the magistrates to consult with the ministers in hard and difficult cases, especially about matters of religion. Yet so as religious care was had of avoiding confusions of counsels, after which in time how useful Mr. Cotton was to old England, to England, to New England, to magistrates, to ministers, to people in public and private, by preaching, by counsel, and by resolving difficult questions, all know that knew him. In the course of his ministry in New Boston, the presence of the Lord being with him and crowning his labors with the conversion of many souls and the edification of thousands. Some years after, there was brought into Boston a report of the necessitous condition of the poor saints at Segadia, a little church whereof Mr. White was a faithful pastor, which suffered much extremity by reason of the persecution of their men prevailing adversaries, 
forth in them from Bermudas into the desert continent, the sound of whose distress was no sooner heard of, but you might have heard the sounding of his bowels, with many others applying themselves to a speedy collection and sending it to them for their seasonable relief. The sum was about seven hundred pounds, two hundred whereof he gathered in the church of Boston, no man in the contribution exceeding, and but one equaling his bounty. And it was remarkable that his contribution arrived there the very day after those poor people were brought to a personal division of that little meal, then remaining in the barrel, and not seeing according to man, but that after the eating thereof they must die a lingering death for want of food. And upon the same day their pastor had preached unto them, it being the Lord's day, upon the text, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. At such a time the good hand of the Lord brought this succour to them from afar. Mr. Cotton, being now advanced in years and sickly, did according to that of James, sent for the elders of the church to pray over him, which last solemn duty was performed, not without much affection and many tears. Then, as Polycarp, a little before his death, said that he had served Christ fourscore and six years and had always found him merciful and kind to him, so Mr. Cotton told them that through grace he had now served God forty years, it being so long time since his conversion, throughout which time he had ever found him a faithful God, and thereupon he took occasion to exhort them to the like effect that Paul sometimes did the elders of Ephesus, a little before they were to see his face no more. Take heed therefore to yourself and to all the flock, over which he have made you overseers, to feed the church which he has purchased with his own blood. Particularly he lamented that the love of many, yea, and of some of their own congregation, was grown cold towards the public ordinances, calling upon them so much the more for their watchfulness, in that respect which done, he thanked them for their loving and brotherly assistance to him in their holy fellowship, and commending them to the blessing of God. Then that godly man, Mr. Wilson, the faithful pastor of the Church of Boston, taking his last leave of him, and most ardently praying unto God, that he would lift up the light of his countenance upon him, and shed his love into his soul, he presently answered, He hath done it already, brother. He died in 1652. The next Puritan whose life I am reading about is Dr. Richard Sibbs. He was born upon the borders of Suffolk near Sudbury, and being trained up at school when he was grown, ready for the university, was sent to Cambridge in 1595, and was admitted into St. John's College, where he so profited in learning, and approved himself by his blameless conversation, that he was promoted from one degree to another in the college, being chosen first scholar and then fellow of that house. He also took all the degrees of the university with general approbation and applause. It pleased God to convert him by the ministry of Mr. Paul Baines, whilst he was lecturer at St. Andrews in Cambridge. And when Mr. Sibbs had been master of arts some while, he entered into the ministry, and shortly after was chosen lecturer himself at Trinity Church in Cambridge, to whose ministry, besides the townsmen, were many scholars resorted, so that he became a worthy instrument of begetting sons and daughters unto God, as also of edifying and building up of others. About the year 1625, or 1626, he was chosen master of Catherine Hall in Cambridge, in the government whereof he continued until his dying day, and like a faithful governor he was always very careful to procure in advance the good of that little house. For he procured good means and maintenance by his interests and many worthy persons for the enlargement of the college, and was a means of establishing learned and religious fellows there, insomuch that in his time it proved a very famous society for piety and learning, both as to fellows and scholars. But before this, about the year 1618, he was chosen preacher at Gray's Inn, where his ministry found such general approbation and acceptance 
that besides the learned lawyers of the house, many noble personages and many of the gentry and citizens resorted to hear him. And many had reason to bless God for the benefit which they received by him. His learning was mixed with much humility, whereby he was always ready to undervalue his own labors. Though others judged him to breathe spirit and life, to be strong of heaven, speaking with authority and power to men's consciences, his care in the course of his ministry was to lay a good foundation in the heads and hearts of his hearers. And though he was a wise master builder, and that in one of the most eminent auditories for learning and piety that was in the land, yet according to the grace which was given to him, which was indeed like that of Elisha in regard of the other prophets, the elder brother's privilege, a double portion, he was still taking all occasions to preach of the fundamentals to them, and amongst the rest of the incarnation of the Son of God, and preaching at several times, and by occasion of so many several texts of Scripture concerning this subject, there is scarce any one of those incomparable benefits which accrued to us thereby, nor any of those holy impressions which the meditation hereof ought to work in our hearts, which was not by him sweetly unfolded. Indeed, who was thoroughly studied in the Holy Scriptures, which made him a man of God, perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work, and as he became a faithful steward of the manifold graces of God, he endeavored to teach others the whole counsel of God and to store them with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He was a man that enjoyed much communion with God, walking in all the laws of God blameless, and like John the Baptist was a burning and shining light, wasting and spending himself to enlighten others. He was upon all occasions very charitable, drawing forth not only his person relieving, but his very bowels and commiserating the wants and necessities of the poor members of Christ. He used sometimes in the summer times to go abroad to the houses of some worthy personages where he was an instrument of much good, not only by his private laborers, but by his prudent counsel and advice, that upon every occasion he was ready to minister unto them. And thus having done his work on earth, he went to receive his wages in heaven, peaceably and comfortably, resigning up his spirit unto God in the year 1635, and in the 58th year of his age. The next Puritan I'm going to read about is Mr. Richard Mather. Richard Mather was the uh, father of Increase Mather, and Increase Mather was the father of Cotton Mather, who wrote 382 books, including the works of Christ in America. Richard Mather was born in a village called Lowton in the parish of Winwick in the country of Lancaster in 1596. After he had spent sundry years in the school, some Popish merchants coming out of Wells to Warrington, which is but two miles from Winwick, made diligent inquiry whether there were not some in that school whom they might procure for apprentices. Presently Richard Mather was mentioned to them, whereupon application was made to his father to know whether he would thus dispose of him, who was inclinable to accept of the motion, because now his estate was so decayed that he almost despaired of bringing up this his son as he intended. But here divine providence was very observable, for when the father was thus ready to part with his son and the child to go, the Lord raised up the heart of his master to be importunate to keep him at school, professing that it was great pity that a wit so prone to learning should be taken from it, or that he should be undone by popish education, and the persuasions of the master so far prevailed that his scholar was continued under his care until the fifteenth year of his age. His conversion was occasioned partly by observing a strange difference between himself and sundry in the godly family of Mr. Edward Aspinwall, which caused fear to rise in his soul, lest haply he might not be in the right way. 
partly by one of Mr. Harrison's preaching upon John 3, verse 3 concerning the necessity of regeneration. This was in 1614. The pangs of the new birth were very terrible in him, insomuch as many times when others were at their meals in the family, he absented himself to retire under hedges and in other secret places, there to lament his misery before God. But after some time the Lord revived his broken heart by sending the Holy Spirit to accompany the ministry of the Word and to enable him to apply the precious promises of the gospel to his soul. After some years he went to Oxford. But having not spent so much time there as he could have wished, the people at Toxteth, whose children had been trained up by him, sent to him, desiring that he would return to instruct not so much their children as himself, and that not so much in mere human literature, but in the things of God. And this call after mature deliberation he accepted of. Being returned to Toxteth, he preached his first sermon, November 30th, 1618. There was a very great concourse of people to hear him, and his labors were highly accepted of by those who were judicious. The people having now had some trial of his gifts, were the more importunate to have him fix amongst them. And because that could not be done without ordination, they urged him to accept thereof. He yielded to the motion and accordingly was ordained by Dr. Morton, the then Bishop of Chester. The ordination being ended, the bishop singled out Mr. Mather from among the rest, saying, I have something to say to you between you and me alone. Mr. Mather was hereupon afraid that some information had been given in against him because of his Puritanism. But it fell out far otherwise, for when the bishop had him alone, he spoke thus upon him, I have an earnest request unto you, and you must not deny me. It is that you will pray for me, for I know, said he, the prayers of men that fear God will avail much, and such an one I believe you to be. After he had spent painfully and faithfully fifteen years in the work of the ministry, he that holds the stars in his right hand had more work for him to do elsewhere, and therefore Satan's rage was suffered to break forth to the stopping of his mouth. The case being thus, he betook himself to a private life, and no hope appearing that he should enjoy his liberty in the land of his nativity, foreseeing also the approaching calamities of England, he meditated a removal into New England, being fully satisfied concerning the clearness of his call to New England, after many prayers and extraordinary seeking of God, he resolved upon the transportation of himself and family thither. His parting with his friends in Lancashire was like St. Paul's taking his leave of Ephesus with much sorrow, many tears being shed by those that expected to see his face no more. He began his journey in April 1635 and traveled to Bristol, purposing to take ship there. In this journey he was forced to change his outward habit, because perservients were designed to apprehend him. But by this means he came safe and unmolested to Bristol. From, From Bristol they set sail for New England, May 23, 1635. And the Lord, after manifold trials of their faith and patience, brought them in safety to their desired haven. It is seldom known that a man designing God's counsel to any special services does not at one time or other experience imminent deliverances of God's providence. And so it was with this servant of the Lord, not once or twice, but the most remarkable of all others was that which happened to him on the mighty waters, where he that sits upon the floods and stilleth the raging of the sea showed himself wonderful in goodness. The relation of this signal providence we will here set down in Mr. Mather's own words, quote, August 15, 1635, The Lord had not yet done with us, nor had he let us see all his power and goodness. And therefore about break of day he sent a most terrible storm of rain and easterly wind, whereby we were in as much danger as I think ever people were. When we came to land we found many mighty trees rent in pieces in the midst of their bodies, 
and others turned up by the roots of the fierceness of the tempest. That morning we lost three anchors and cables, one of them having never been in the water before. Two were broken by the strength and violence of the storm, and the third was cut off by the mariners, an extremity of distress to save the ship and their own and our lives. And when our cables and anchors were all lost and gone, we had no visible means of deliverance, but by hoisting sail, if so be, we might get to sea from among the islands and rocks where we had anchored. But the Lord let us see that our sails could not save us neither, no more than the cables and anchors. For by the force of the storm the sails were rent in pieces as if they had been caught in rags. Of divers of them there was scarce left so much as an hand's breadth that was not torn in pieces or blown away into the sea, so that at that time all hope that we should be saved in all outward appearance was utterly taken away, and the rather because we seemed to drive with full force of wind directly upon a mighty rock, standing out in sight above water, so that we did but continually wait when we should hear and feel the crashing of the ship upon the rock. In this extremity we cried unto the Lord, and he was pleased to have compassion upon us, for by his own overruling providence he guided his ship by the rock, assuaged the violence of the sea and of the wind. So God granted us as wonderful a deliverance as I think ever any people had felt. The seamen confessed that they never knew the like. In all this the Lord's holy name be blessed for it. He gave us hearts contented and willing that he should do with us and ours what he pleased and what might be most for the glory of his great name. This deliverance was the most remarkable in that several vessels were cast away in the storm. As a ship which set out for Bristol with the vessel wherein Mr. Mather was, being then at anchor, was broken pieces. Also there was then a ship going between Pascataqua and the bay, which was cast away in the storm, and all the people therein lost except two. Among others in that vessel there was a minister, Mr. Avery, who every moment, expecting that the next wave should be a wave of death, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Lord, I cannot challenge a promise of the preservation of my life, but according to thy covenant I challenge heaven, which he had no sooner spoken, but a wave came immediately and swept him away, and so wasted him to heaven indeed. And by the way, let it be noted, that this was the only vessel which at that time had miscarried with passengers from old England to new, so signally did the Lord in his providence own the plantation of New England. The storm being allied, the Lord brought them safe to an anchor before Boston, August 17, 1635, and Mr. Mather abode with his family in Boston for some months, and both he and his consort joined to the church there, being thus by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, brought safe into New England, sundry towns sent to him, desiring that he would employ the talents which the Lord had enriched him with for the work of the ministry amongst them. At the same time he was desired at Plymouth, Dorchester, and Roxbury, being in a great strait which of these invitations to accept of, he referred himself to the advice of some judicious friends, among whom Mr. Cotton and Mr. Thomas Hooker were the chief, who met to consult of this affair. And the result of their advice was that he should accept of the motion from Dorchester, which accordingly being accepted of by him, he did by the help of Christ set upon the gathering of a church there, the church which was first planted in that place being removed from the Reverend Mr. Warham to Connecticut. Being thus again settled in the Lord's work, he therein continued to his dying day, the Lord making him an eminent blessing not only to Dorchester, but to all the churches and plantations round about him, for the space of almost four and thirty years. Before and for some years after his accepting the office of a pastor in Dorchester, he was in much spiritual distress by reason of uncertainty concerning his spiritual estate. 
He kept these troubles secret from men, only he revealed the distress of his soul to that great divine Mr. Norton, then teacher of the church at Ipswich, unto whom God gave the tongue of the learned to speak a word in season, whereby his soul was comforted. He did not speak much in his last sickness, neither to his friends that visited him or to his own children. Only his son, who was now teacher of a church in Boston, coming to visit his father, said unto him, Sir, if there be any special thing which you have me to do, in case the Lord should spare me upon earth after you are in heaven, I would entreat you express it. At which his father, making a little pause and lifting up his eyes and hands towards heaven, replied, A special thing which I would commend to you is care concerning the rising generation in this country, that they be brought under the government of Christ in his church, and that when they are grown up and qualified, they have baptism for the children. He died in 1669. Mr. Thomas Vincent, another Puritan divine, he was a worthy, humble, pious man of sober principles and great zeal and diligence. He had the whole New Testament and Psalms by heart. He continued in the city the whole time of the plague in 1665. The awfulness of that desolating judgment and the numerous sudden instances of mortality, then everywhere obvious, gave a peculiar edge to the spirit of the preacher and his auditors so that laboring constantly and with great fervor to set in with divine providence, he was an instrument of good to very many, as was mentioned in the preceding section. He died in 1671. The next Puritan in this account is Dr. Thomas Manton. He was born in 1620 in the county of Somerset. Both his father and grandfather were ministers. He went to Oxen at 15 years of age. He was first minister of Collington and Devon, and afterwards of Stoke Newington and Middlesex, before he came to Covent Garden, where he succeeded Mr. Sedgwick. He was in great reputation at the time of King Charles' return, and very earnest in his endeavors to get the declaration for ecclesiastical affairs passed into a law, and had it been compassed would have accepted the deanery that was offered him. He was a man of great learning, judgment, and integrity, and an excellent unwearied preacher, one of great temper and moderation, and respected by all that knew him, whose spirits were not incurably cankered. Dr. Bates in a sermon at his funeral gave this account of him. A clear judgment, rich fancy, strong memory, and happy elocution met in him and were excellently improved by his diligent study. In preaching he was of that conspicuous eminence that none, that none could detract from him but from ignorance or envy. He abounded in the work of the Lord, and though a very frequent preacher, yet was always superior to most others and equal to himself. Archbishop Usher was wont to say of him that he was a, that he was a voluminous preacher, not as if he was tedious for length, but because he had the art of reducing the substance of volumes of divinity into a narrow compass. And Mr. Stephen Charnock often represented him as the best collector of sense of the age. He was no fomenter of faction, but studious of the public tranquility. His generous constancy of mind in resisting the current of popular humor declared his loyalty to his divine master. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb 
at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.